You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only in the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, is, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Hope. In our world today, hope is a hard-to-define four-letter word. When we use it, we often do it kind of with our fingers crossed. For instance, if you ask me now if I think the Warriors are going to win the finals next year, I'll say I hope so. But what I really mean is, I don't know, but there's a chance. See, we positively apply the word hope to things that we're not sure are actually going to happen. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Overwhelmingly, when the Bible uses the word hope positively, it is in the context of a sure deliverance. The Bible uses the word hope when God has spoken. Because when God speaks, even if it hasn't happened yet, it is as good as as done. Even if we can't lay our hands on it right now, it is no less real. And this morning, the Apostle Paul wants us to see that our hope is as real as the tomb is empty. See, this year we've been working our way through Paul's New Testament letter to the Romans, and each week what we've been doing is we're trying to show you that the basic message of Romans is how God forms a new humanity full of people demonstrating the light and life of God's kingdom in and to a brutal and broken world. And that is an important point. He doesn't form a new humanity by taking us out of the broken world, but by sending us back into it with a life-changing hope. A hope that is true, a hope that is secure, a hope that enables us to persevere to the end in joy. But as we're going to see this morning, and I'm sure many of you already know it, hope and suffering in the Christian life go hand in hand. And so my main point this morning is this. The Christian's sure hope of glory lies on the other side of a life full of joy-filled suffering for Jesus' sake. The Christian's sure hope of glory lies on the other side of a life full of joy-filled suffering for Jesus' sake. And as we walk through our text this morning, I want to unpack that in three points. We're going to look at it in eventual glory, evident corruption, and enduring hope. 
eventual glory, evident corruption, and enduring hope. Let's start with point number one, eventual glory. The, the maps feature on our phones is actually pretty amazing. I, my wife and I, we were just traveling over this last week in and through the mountains, and I was just kind of astonished by the fact that, like, this is pretty amazing. We just type in the destination, we hit the start button, and then put our phone in the cup holder and let, us tell us, let it tell us when to turn, when to merge, what lane to be in, when we should change lanes, what, if there's road construction ahead. See, we can, do, we, can, we can look up road conditions. We can check which, which route is going to be the fastest, which one's the longest and takes the scenic route. Technology has afforded us the opportunity to choose our own path based on what we value the most, our own personal preferences. And that usually involves our own comfort and ease. See, in this week, the first few verses of our text is acting as, as kind of one of those big signs that hangs over the freeway. You know, you know the ones that, that I'm talking about. They say, like, caution, construction ahead, or slow traffic ahead, or 15 minutes to downtown Sacramento. They're there to let us know what's lying ahead and to let us know what we can expect in the future on our way to our destination. And today, the Apostle Paul is holding up a road sign. And the message he's giving us is, beware, suffering ahead. And regardless of what route you choose in your phone, you can choose the one that is the most direct or the one that goes the long way around. If you are a Christian, the sign hanging over all the routes in your phone is beware, suffering ahead. And if it is not, you may have typed in a different destination than the rest of us. Because this is one of the most prominent themes in the New Testament and even the whole Bible. God's people suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. We suffer for our faith. And if you were here last week, you may have noticed, but our text today picks up the last two verses of what we studied a week ago. And this is because for us to understand the destination of glory that awaits the Christian, we actually need to understand the path that we're traveling in order to get there. And as I said last week, even Jesus' pathway to glory had a cross right in the middle of it. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. We see, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Four times in these two verses, we read the word with. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Cool, we love that. We're we're heirs of the Father with Christ. All right, we're digging that one as well. Assuming we suffer with him, that one's not my favorite, so that we will be glorified with him. All right, cool. But what was that last thing you said, Paul? What was that last one? You kind of glossed over that. See, there's a roadmap in our, for, the, for the Christian life right here in our text. We're heirs with Christ. We type in our destination to glory, but the map is filled with suffering. And I feel like whenever we read this in our Bibles, we try, we try to ensure that this is not going to be us, that we're going to be the exception. We think, nope, I'm going to sow those seeds of faith And God is going to give me the good life that I want because I'm just going to be as obedient as I can. But the author of Hebrews is going to say it like this. He's going to say, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering. Why do we expect it's going to be different for us? Why do we think that we are going to be the exception? See, if we're really adopted sons of the Father, as we learned last week, then we should expect to begin to look like our older brother. 
we should expect to start bearing the family resemblance, right? You don't have to tell my sons to look like me. They just look like me. It's because they have their mother and my DNA in them. They're a product of our relationship. And, and that's how it is for us with God. As Christians, God has put his DNA of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we begin now to look like our older brother. But because we look like him, the world then begins to treat us like him as well. See, Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as his own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's saying the world doesn't really hate you. They hate me. But you're mine, so you're guilty by association in their eyes. Right? Jesus is basically just saying the same thing we read in Hebrews a minute ago. We're not greater than our master, so we shouldn't expect the world to treat us any better than they treated him. And so Paul here is just joining the biblical witness by holding up the road sign, saying, suffering ahead. But really, he wants to take our eyes off of the traffic conditions and let him linger on the destination. He's going to spend plenty of time in our text here uh, telling us how terrible things are. But he really wants our minds to meditate, and he wants our, our, our minds to be consumed with where we are actually headed, not the path we take to get there. And the reason is this. Where we believe we are headed is going to drastically change our perception of the path that it takes to get there. See, let's read in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, my wife is from Germany, and all of her family still lives there. And every few years, we make the journey back. But as we've started to have kids um, and, and costs have increased, the, the traveling has not been nearly as easy or inexpensive. Eleven hours trapped in a steel tube miles above the earth with a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I mean, that speaks for itself. And so, but if we were only focused on the path it takes to get there, only focused on the journey, we would just never go, to be honest with you, because it's not that great. But instead, when we focus on who we are going to see and what we are going to do and the joy that awaits us when we get there, we're compelled to make the journey no matter the cost. Because the frustrations along the way are not even to be compared with the glory that awaits us. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, yeah, the path is hard, but it doesn't even compare with the destination. It doesn't compare with the glory of where we're headed. It doesn't compare with the reward given to, to the one that finishes the race. Or as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, the pathway there is just a light and momentary affliction not to be compared with the glory of the destination. They shouldn't even be in the same sentence. And that word revealed in verse 18 of our text is actually pretty interesting because it means uncovering what was previously hidden. That's not the interesting part. That makes sense to us. Um, but what he's saying is how spectacularly good it's going to be is not even something that we can currently know. It's hidden from us. See, the Apostle John is going to say it like this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him 
because we shall see him as he is. The apostles are saying, we do not know what we are going to be like, but we know we're going to be like him. And we know we're going to be with him. And that makes this whole thing worth it. Right? Something, something happened to the apostles. The gospel accounts show them to be these dull, kind of bumbling, slow-to-get-with-it guys where you go like, really, Jesus, these are the guys you're going to invest in? These are the guys that you're going to send your gospel out into the world with? But then, right, they're, they're always even fighting for who's the greatest. And in Jesus' moment of most need, where are they? They're gone. But the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament shows these guys as lions of the faith willing to be beaten and even killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Any, any reader is going to look at that and go, what happened? They saw him. They saw a man that they knew to be dead, alive. They touched him. They felt him. They hugged him. And now it's worth suffering for him and with him in this life in order that they will be glorified with him in the next. And so it's the same with us. Have we seen him? I feel like many of us would answer that question, yes, but there are times, we even, talk, we even prayed through it this morning in pre-service prayer. There are times where we have trouble seeing him, where our, our memory fails moment to moment. And so when we get into those hard situations in our jobs where we might lose our job for our faith, man, Jesus is pretty clouded. But we need to lay hold of him again. Where we may lose social status in this world, man, Jesus maybe kind of goes away a little bit. But it's those moments where we need to lay hold of him if it means following Jesus faithfully in this world. And so we're headed to glory. We know the destination, but suffering litters the path. Interestingly, though, it's not just for Christians. We get it uniquely, but we're not the only ones suffering. So let's look at our second point, evident corruption. All right, so in our passage this morning, uh, Paul's not pulling any punches. We see that things are wrong. Um, but what he's pointing out is that as Christians, we're not the only ones who know it. See, we read in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here we see that it's not just us that knows something's wrong. It's the whole creation is waiting for the fullness of the revelation of the sons of God. And, and that, those two words there, eager longing, what it means is an intense anticipation Right? It's like the entire cosmos was waiting in line at midnight to see the final Avengers movie. The whole Marvel Universe had unfolded. There's all these movies and intricate storylines, and they all played a part in what fans knew about how the thing was going to end. And so there's this giant anticipation. And what Paul is saying is that the whole creation is standing in line waiting. They want to see how it's going to end. But now let's, let's look at verses 20 and 21. We read, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, one of the things that virtually all of the commentators point out here is that in verse 20, Paul uses the same Greek word for futility that the Greek version of the Old Testament uses for vanity in Ecclesiastes. And, and basically, everyone points this out. So it was, in my study, it was one of those things I was like, all right, I got I to gotta look into this thing. And we can summarize the, the whole point of Ecclesiastes in two verses, and they're right at the very beginning of the book. 
We read, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? See, the author is saying that everything done in this world is pointless. It's vanity. It's futile. It's chasing after the wind. And now, Paul is using the same word. He's using the same word here, and he's drawing attention to the same kind of thinking. He's saying, you know that, you know that feeling of pointlessness you all feel? That feeling of, oh, what's this whole thing for? He's saying, yeah, everyone else feels that too. Because Christians and non-Christians alike, we are all part of God's creation. We're all creatures made by our creator God. And so an aspect of creation feeling the futility that we've been subjected to is that all people feel it. We must. Non-Christians just find a different way to deal with it. See, for instance, uh, Mei Wang, who is a self-described spiritual atheist, wrote an article some years ago, and in it she, she wrestled with the question of, if we all end up dying, what is the purpose of living? And I feel like that's a pretty relatable question that probably many of us in the room have asked ourselves at some point. If we're all just going to die, what's the purpose of this life? And her conclusion, though, was this. There is no purpose of living. Living is the purpose. There is no purpose of living. Living itself is the purpose. And to be honest with you, I don't know if she realizes that this is not an original thought. Uh, Paul says it before her in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if the dead are not, la- are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Paul there is, is simply just quoting Isaiah 22. But it, but it really comes f- back full circle in Ecclesiastes again, because that's where we see this thing in its fullness. And the author of Ecclesiastes writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, he says, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. He says, eat and drink because tomorrow you're going to die and the fun's going to be over. And if I could just say really quickly, if if you're not a Christian here with us this morning, maybe you're just checking the things of Christianity out, or maybe you were invited by a friend, I just want to draw your attention to this. See, Christianity is very truthful about life if Jesus is still dead. This is very honest, and this is in our Bibles. Christianity does not shy away from this. It acknowledges that if what we say is not true, if Christ really still is in the grave, then we should just live it up now because we're going to die and be forgotten. There's no point in living a good life. There's no point in being moral or succeeding because eventually the pages of history are going to forget you. But that should tell you something about how truly we believe that the tomb really is empty. We hang our whole lives and eternity on that historical fact. And we hope that you keep coming back to learn more about it. But let's keep going. Let's read in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now that is vivid imagery. I was in the room when both of my sons were born, and those groans are real. 
I've, been, I've personally been in pain so severe that I could not use words to describe it, but I could only get out moans and groans, and it paled in comparison to what I witnessed when my wife was in labor. But look here, we see that the, all of creation has been groaning together. So humans and the rest of creation are all in the same boat. It's not like an us against them. It's not us against the environment or anything like that. But while all creation may be in the same boat, we do have to admit that we are all here because of some errors that we made along the way. We steered the ship off course. See, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, God subjected the rest of creation to the same futility as all of us. God would make all of creation suffer the consequences for our actions. Because we were created to rule over his creation. Genesis 1 and 2 are going to tell us that. We were created to govern it. Um, but we were, we were created to do that on his behalf. But just because we failed, that does not change what we were created for. Maybe that's a word for some of us this morning. Just because you have failed, it does not change what God has created you for. But see, sin is never isolated. It always permeates. It always gets into everything. And it creates this feeling of futility and hopelessness. Forests grow back just in time for them to burn down again. We go pick up trash in our parks just to get home and read on the news that there's literally an island of trash floating in the ocean. And so it feels hopeless. What's this all for? It's like, it's like when I dust my house, Right? By the time I finish, it's, it's just futile because by the time I finish, I already know there's this thin layer of dust forming on all of the surfaces I just cleaned. What is the point of this? And so we groan. We groan with all of creation. And in verse 23, we read, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is reminding us, Christian, you are not exempt. Remember that thing I told you about earlier, beware, suffering ahead? Yeah, it's still true. You're not exempt. Even Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, which simply just means that we have the assurance of God's Spirit with us that we're going to make it to the end. We don't have the fullness of what we will have, but we have the first fruits of it in the Spirit with us now. Even we are eagerly anticipating the day when creation will be made new. And so Paul is saying the same thorns and thistles, the same frustrations we feel in this life, the seeming progress and then the letdowns. Yeah, all of creation has been subjected to that same vanity. But the thing about labor is this. It's in the screams of pain that we hear the hope of new life. One of the things that this text shows us very vividly is God is not forming simply a new humanity but he, the entire arc of redemptive history is bending towards a new creation. And that leads us to our third and final point, enduring hope. Um, famed social scientist of the mid to late 20th century, Ernest Becker, described what he called uh, the hero system in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. And he argued that the hero system is this, is this longing or ache that we all have for authoritarian leaders. We long for them because they promise the endurance of power. They promise wealth and prosperity and the endurance of our nation. And through all of it, we feel as though we can, in a sense, overcome death. 
if we support their cause, we can kind of overcome death. And if we align ourselves with the right power, we'll be able to overcome death itself. And, and that's really what we're all after anyway. But as we've seen throughout history, both distant and near, to align ourselves with these leaders means that we destroy those around us. Author J. Todd Billings puts it like this in his book. He says, The authoritarian leaders of the right and the left gain power because we fixate on their virtues, their causes, their promises of their respective legacies. And as we do so, we shut out and dehumanize others. The faces and voices of those opposing our righteous cause must be eliminated. Whether poisoned in gas chambers or starved on government-owned farms to achieve our heroic vision. We do all these atrocities to our neighbors because we want to achieve the vision that the leader has laid out in front of us. And Billings goes on to say that as Christians, not only are we not immune to this hero system, but we're often the catalyst that propels this thing forward. It's our idolatries that keep this train moving. See, we need to look ourselves in the mirror on this one. And we do all of this. We do all of it because of hope, that four-letter word. See, these authoritarian leaders, they're not just people either. We give ourselves to these things in many ways. Paul instructs Timothy to tell the church not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And Jesus tells us not to put our hope in our ability to keep the law in John chapter 5. See, we invest our hope into these leaders, the people, yeah, but also into our possessions, into our own abilities, and we are willing to be maligned for their causes. We're, we're willing to be chastised by those around us to support this because they paint a picture of the good life that we all want. We want a life with no road signs hanging over telling us that suffering lies ahead. And we think that if we hope in leaders, we think we're going to have security and stability. We think if we hope in our money, then we're going to have freedom and joy. We think if we hope in our own abilities, we can expect to earn a life with no sorrows. But Christian, is not all of this and more found in Jesus Christ? Do we not ultimately find all of these longings satisfied in more uh, beauty and joy than we could possibly imagine in him. Verses 24 and 25, and then we're done. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In these two verses, we read the, the word hope five times. And Paul says this hope. Well, what hope is that? It's the redemption of our bodies. The day when the not yet will be the already. The day that the sons of God will be fully revealed. See, we say often that we live in this already not yet tension of redemptive history. We say Christ has delivered us from the power and the sway of sin already, but things are not yet what they will be one day. And all that this means is that, uh, yeah, we have to deal with the product of sin, but by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we will not have to deal with its penalty. But see, we lay hold of our hope by faith. 
The two are inextricably connected. The author of Hebrews is going to say it like this. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so the essence of faith is that we have the assurance, the conviction, the biblical hope of things that we cannot put our hands on now, but we know that one day we will. And this is how Jesus himself lived his life here on earth. At the end of a passage that's known as the Great Hall of Faith in Hebrews, uh, the author goes on to say, Since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Was it a physical, tangible joy that he suffered for? One that he could get off the cross and grab right that moment? No, it was for the sure hope that through his obedience he would purchase for himself his bride. That we, us, living thousands of years later, would be, be, be able to come in through faith. And so now Jesus is our example, yes, run like him, but he's much more than that, he's our savior. He's the true leader that our hearts really long for. His rule and reign is perfect, and of his kingdom there is no end. See, Jesus, God from very God, got up from his throne once to come down and finish the work of our salvation through his life, death, and glorious resurrection. And Hebrews right here is telling us that right now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All authority and power in his hands. But see, the Bible tells us that he's going to get up again. And when he does, he's going to come and make all things new. He's going to quiet the groans of creation. And we will see and we will touch and we will taste the fullness of what we cannot now. And this, this is the hope that you need. This is the hope that our hearts really want. A hope that gives us joy-filled assurance to live lives of pain for the tangible reward of Christ. A hope of groaning and lament. Yes, even lament is bound up in this hope because we are begging Christ to come quickly that it may be on earth as it is in heaven. This morning, Anchor your hope for this world and the next to Jesus Christ who said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Our Father.